I am an inherently practical soul. So I've never understood romance in my real life. So I don't know if I can write like a romance romance in fiction. I can write a trashy romance though. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks, and we build technology that helps people spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work we do is that we get to talk to authors about their books, as well as the books that shape them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Eden Robinson. She's the author of five works of fiction for which she has received numerous accolades, including a spot on the Giller Prize shortlist for her first novel, Monkey Beach, which also won the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize, an honor bestowed on the best work of fiction by a resident of the province of British Columbia, and which she won a second time for Trickster Drift, the second book in her Trickster trilogy. I'm especially thrilled to be talking with Eden because the first book of that trilogy, Son of a Trickster, has been made into Trickster the TV series, streaming into the living rooms now. That gives readers even more time to spend with these characters while looking forward to the release of the final book in the series, Return of the Trickster, in 2021. Eden Robinson. Welcome to Kobo. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Okay. I'm just going to call it out at the top. I love a good trickster story so i came into these books ready to rock like i was i was all set from the beginning and from both son of a trickster and trickster drift i've been having such a good time reading them i thought we could talk a bit about son of a trickster because it's now the brand new tv series and Trickster Drift, because it's the most recent one that came out last year. And maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to get a hint about the one that's coming out next year. <laughs> well, Does that sound good? <laughs> that sounds good, but I'm a terrible spoiler. Like, no one would watch. When people were watching Game of Thrones with me, um, they would block me on Facebook, so I wouldn't spoil <laughs> any of them. <laughs> because you're watching, hey, this person's going to die. <laughs> don't, don't get attached to them. <laughs> Well, the worst was when Cersei blew up the <laughs> I was texting as it was as I was watching it, and they were going ah, <laughs> block. <laughs> yeah, that's how you that's how you lose friends. Okay, we're gonna try to we we will try to uh, to navigate that very fine balance between building anticipation and spoilers. Okay. So that's that's our job. Okay, so let's start. Assuming people haven't read either of these books that are starting at the beginning, it feels like the best way to begin that is tell me a bit about Jared, our main character. Oh my goodness. Well, Jared was the third narrator that I tried, like the very first. When I had decided to write a trickster short story, I chose Weget as the narrator. But it turned out he was, it was, it would be like reading a Sherlock Holmes book from the point of Sherlock Holmes, uh, I realized very quickly that I needed a Watson. So I uh, tried to write it from Maggie's point of view, but there were so many fight scenes. <laughs> and, and so so to make this make sense, you have to tell you have to tell us about Maggie. <laughs> it, was, it was more of a wrestling book than a, than a like a crime novel than a trickster story. Because um, she really, at, you know, at the entry point of Son of a Trickster, she really didn't like uh, Weekend. 
Uh, so I was hunting around and I had noodled around with a short story collection. I believe I was calling it Prayers from the Body. So it was a, a traditional Indigenous dance group in East Vancouver. So I wanted it to be kind of like the commitments, like the story of how they form and fall apart. Yes. Um, yeah. And there was this one story that never went anywhere. It was like this young man was coming down on the Greyhound and arriving in Vancouver late in the evening and he didn't know anyone. And it was it was such a lonely, haunting opening. So I looked at that character and thought, well, what if this is the son of the trickster, but he doesn't know it yet? Uh, so, <laughs> so, so instead of being like a 10 page short story that I imagined, because I always, you know, it, it's in the indigenous union guidelines that you have to write a trickster story <laughs> in your career. At least one. <laughs> At least once. <laughs> so I was going to write a 10-page short story about, you know, the son of a trickster arriving in Vancouver. And by page 50, I realized it was probably a novella. And then when it hit page 400, I thought, oh, but I think it's a novel. <laughs> uh, so what was your first clue? <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was, it was a, you know, I think it was just because I had switched writing times. Like, I started off my career being a night owl. Uh, like, I would write from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock. But because uh, I had so many things going on in my life, by the time 10 o'clock rolled around, I just couldn't write anymore. I didn't have the energy. So I switched to writing uh, at 4 in the morning. So all of Son of a Trickster was written between 4 and 5 a.m., and that real, if you have trouble shutting off your inner editor, I highly recommend waking up at four. <laughs> so you just waited until your inner editor was unconscious, is what you're saying. It was like, <laughs> it works. <laughs> she's asleep. <laughs> uh, I don't think she's I, asleep. Yeah, let's start now. I don't think I wrote a lot like the first week that I did that. Like, I think I was just, I was so like stunned to be awake at that hour uh but once i got used to it like at that point i was adjuncting like i was working with iaia i was doing gigs with ubc um and like a bunch of different online residencies uh i couldn't really leave kitimat for too long so that was perfect for me like i had been kicking around the idea of a trickster story for many years and there was you know it sort of it gelled uh that year and actually trickster drift was where the the trilogy was supposed to begin or where then eventually what i figured out was a novel was supposed to begin but it had so much backstory set in kitimat that my uh towards the end of that original manuscript I'd have like one chapter in Vancouver and try break it up and have one chapter in Kitimat, Vancouver, Kitimat, Vancouver, Kitimat. They both have two very different casts. They both have uh, very different feelings to them. So I tried to get uh, my, I had about 10 first readers and they were universally confused by what was happening in the last third of the novel. So to get around that, I tried to clump all the Kitimat section together and cram a novella in the last third of my novel. 
it's, so it's Vancouver, Vancouver, Vancouver. Jump back for a hundred pages to get about, and then end back. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> far up the coast. <laughs> So in addition to like, you know, the monstrous cast I always have, like there was just, they, they had nicknames, there were different times. So, um, so when I was finally working with my editor, uh, she was like, well, it's, you know, it's a good story, but it's a confusing story. And I think it's because you have so many elements. Uh, would you consider simplifying one of them? Like what if, you simplified and what was your response to that is that where you say no i will defend it or is it <laughs> well now that you mention it, it there does seem to be a lot going on well i think my reaction at the time was kind of like oh my god i could write something linear <laughs> it's just not my go-to time thread <laughs> It's it's as linear as a Robinson book is going to get. Got it. So when I moved the Kinemat section to the front, it just expanded and expanded and expanded. And then I found my agent and my editor and I was like, hey, <laughs> maybe it's two books. <laughs> I have like another 400 pages. <laughs> Here's a crazy idea. Uh, so we redid the contracts. We renegotiated. It was, it was, you know, um, it was weird. Uh, and then, you know, halfway through writing uh, Trickster Drift, I realized the same thing was happening. Like I was 400 pages in and still hadn't introduced the main antagonist. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, built up my editor, my agent. Oh, right, her. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so that's this is it that's the the trilogy is done that you know i'm not splitting any more books i'm not going into any more time yeah yeah done. got it so back to my original question introduces to jared jared is he's the character that he's the narrator that you landed on he was the last man standing out of several candidates <laughs> tell us about him what is he like <laughs> <laughs> the Robinson mind at work. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, the question. Uh, Jared? Hey, listen, I'll, I'll go wherever you want to go. I'm just you. Know, I'm, I'm just along for the ride. Uh, well, Jared... I'm strapped in. Let, let's, let's go. <laughs> let's see. Uh, Jared Martin, like, once I had my narrator, uh, I had a very clear idea of, you know, what I wanted him to do and where I wanted him to go. Uh, but as I got to know him through you know, just exploring the world, uh, he shifted. Like he was, he was a lot more, he was messier than I was expecting. And he was a lot more generous than I was expecting. And the relationships that he had, he, he really formed tight connections with uh, the people in his life. And uh, that defined where the book went. Um, with a different narrator, like the story would have been completely different. And he is one of those, like those truly nice guys. Like he, he doesn't want to cause any trouble. He yeah. wants to help people. He wants yeah. to be kind in a place that is really often not nice to those kind of people. No, it's not. And uh, that was. Uh, where his uh, his ability to to 
figure his way out of really bad situations uh, that I found really interesting. Um, so I thought, oh, okay, so that's, that's the little trickster in him. You know, he's, he's not the strongest or the smartest or the fastest, but uh, he is pretty clever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the snark was, uh, was just something, I really love it when characters bounce off each other, when they annoy each other and irritate each other. Uh, so I was expecting that, like with his relationship with his mom. But I wasn't expecting the tenderness that came from such a, you know, a conflicted dynamic. That was a, that was a gift from the 4 a.m. muse. <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk about Jared's mom, Maggie, for a second. Because, as you say, like, had she been the narrator of this book, mm-hmm. this would have been a completely different book. <laughs> she, is, she is no joke. Um, <laughs> It would have been much more Fight Club than. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been 100% Kid Mad Fight Club. And I think I could have only sustained that for one novel. <laughs> right. Uh, and even making my way through the, like, I think I went in about 40 pages from her point of view and went, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not into, like, decimating people this early in the morning. <laughs> I don't think it's working from a story point of view. Right. Um, towards the end of the, th- uh, like, in the jumping at way ahead to the third novel, um, there's little bits from pe- other people's point of view. And when I was writing from Maggie's point of view, I could suddenly see, like, how a novel with her would work. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, uh, I think that's a good sign. Because I, up to this point in my novels, uh, the only way I've been able to write is from a singular point of view, whether it's first person or third person limited. I'm either in their head or on their shoulder. Mm-hmm. So in the third novel, it was really exciting because it was the first time that I branched out to multiple characters. Uh, so, And it made sense in that novel. And um, I think... Having a singular point of view is is fantastic for getting one person's perspective, but it also limits the kind of stories you can tell. Like it's it's harder to tell a community story if you're seeing it strictly through like one one pair of eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm very excited about this new uh, this new thing that's happening, and I'm hoping to bring it to my trashy band council romance. <laughs> Oh, we're going to talk about that in a second. No fear. <laughs> That's, I've, I've reserved fully 25% of this interview for uh, for talking about your trashy band council romance. <laughs> so the only book my mom's really looking forward to reading. <laughs> She's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Tricksters you know, literature, again. whatever. <laughs> Let's get some romance. I'm really, really bad at romance. Like, it's, it's not something that uh, I am an inherently practical soul. So uh, I've never understood romance in my real life. So I don't know if I can write, like, a romance romance in fiction. I can write a trashy romance, though. Hey, listen, trashy romances are, like, are their own art form, too. So uh, you've got to <laughs> hone your skills. Back to Jared for a second. Mm. Things are not easy for him. And not just 
in the usual sense of having a tough time with his family and a mother with substance abuse issues and a tendency towards violence, he 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 hears things and he sees things. Mm-hmm. Yes. And at first he thinks he's just been overdoing the partying. But then as things start to escalate in the last third of Son of a Trickster, uh, all the things that have been around him all his life, but he's just sort of written off to, you know, you know, him, him not being all there in the moment uh, are actually things that, you know, they're, they're little signals that he's not what he thinks he is himself. He's more than what he thinks. And we will stop right there because that's the spoiler part that, <laughs> that we're working on. Although I will say, as we get farther into Jared's life in Trickster Drift, we see that that barrier between the regular world and another world is pretty thin and maybe even has some holes in it. But that's all we're going to say, except to say that I will never look at otters the same way again. That's... (laughs) (laughs) When I was growing up with trickster stories, and when when we got to the otter stories, the otter stories were always severely creepy. Yeah. Like, well, I'll just, you know, veer off for a bit again do it let's go yeah one of my cousins had a german shepherd and she loved to run the logging roads with him and as she was running there was like a couple of wolves that started pacing her and the the german shepherd ran off and they frolicked and she was you know at first she thought it was like a wonderful magical moment uh and this kept happening and then one day her German Shepherd didn't come back. And that's what wolves do with dogs. Um, so, oh, yes. And uh, <laughs> it's premeditated. <laughs> they kind of leave them off playing and then they don't come back. And it's not like they join the pack, they kind of do, but. Well, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> so that's their permanent part. <laughs> so that's how our stories with otters worked. Like if you were a kid and you know, in the summer up north, like it, it doesn't really get dark. Like around eleven o'clock it's kind of twilighty dusky. Um so if you heard kids playing on your front lawn and it looked like so much fun, you went and joined them and you were all playing and you were playing and then somehow you ended up in the woods and you were lost. And, you know, once you were weak enough, they ate you. As kids do. Which is why I've never trusted children. <laughs> because, you know, they were otters in human form and they were luring you someplace where they eat you. Yeah. So that's the kind. Uh, so the cutesy, like, hand-holding otters, I, I never, you know, it was always a bit of a, a yeah. split for me. It's like, yeah, you know. It's a ruse. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not, you know, in, in the stories that I know, they're a little more yeah. roidy. They're just saying, no, come on, get a little closer. Water's fine. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> so on that dark note. <laughs> if Chucky was a Care Bear... <laughs> Vancouver Aquarium's going, we are going to have to rethink our entire marketing plan now. (laughs) So on that dark and sinister note, let's talk about 
Eden Robinson, before she became Eden Robinson, award-winning author of Page and Screen, when she was young Eden Robinson, who was totally reasonably afraid of otters. So what place did books have in your life when you were growing up, when you were young? Oh, my, I came from a family of readers. Like, dad loved anything about engines or... Um, like new discoveries. He loved Scientific America, Popular Mechanics. Um, I grew up with stories about asphalts. Like there's a design for your house that is on paper, but when you actually build the house, you find all these little quirks. So you have to work around them. So there's the plan for your house and then there's the asbelt. And you need the asbelt when you're like digging around the sewer or so that you don't hit places. Uh, so if you don't have an ad spelled, you're working off a faulty map. So got it. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. <laughs> like when we would tour, like I brought him and Mom on one of my book tours on Vancouver Island, and on he was very curious about sewage systems. So like you know, I do my reading, I do my workshop, I do my talk, uh, and then we go for a drive to different reserves and uh, get as close as we could to their sewage facilities <laughs> and then he would always like charm his way in if there were people around and and they would discuss like the enzymes they were using or which kind of filtration system they had and what they thought of it and that was like uh so that was dad <laughs> uh mom loved see and all all i can think of when you tell me that is like so what do you get him as a birthday present because that's <laughs> Oh, he was a huge uh, Blue Jays fan and a Raptors fan. It was always easy. Okay. So it wasn't like you had to get, you know, the 1901 sewer map of Manhattan or anything like that. You, you had other places to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was always uh, like, uh, we actually, like when I first moved back uh, in 2003, uh, you know, we, we had been living apart for 20 years. We didn't really know each other. So uh, we really bonded over Robert uh, Luongo's groin pole. Uh, if you don't know the Canucks, that's not going to make any sense. I have a very, a very close friend who's a, a, who's a, a goalie in Vancouver. So those, <laughs> those stories are well known. But your dad was also... Was he not a, like, a Sasquatch aficionado? Oh, he uh, he would tell me that was his biggest disappointment about Monkey Beach. Like, uh, he loved that I included Monkey Beach, the place. Uh, but he said it would have been even more successful if I had included more Sasquatches. So could you do a new edition with, like, 30% more Sasquatch? Just <laughs> He said, that's okay. When you write Monkey Beach 2, you're just going to include more Sasquatches. It's like, I... Yeah. You know, they're, I, I think it's done. So he said, well, you know, just stop focusing on the people and start focusing on the Sasquatches. <laughs> I'm with him. So Monkey Beach retold, but through the Sasquatches point of view was what he was getting at. And as we start talking about your band council romance, I think there's a role for Sasquatches in that also. <laughs> Well, I, I do a completely gratuitous Sasquatch scene in the third book, uh, Return of the Trickster. So he's he's got a big chapter, and then he's got like a like a light mention towards the end. Cannot wait. That was my nod, you know, hey, Dad. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> 30% more Sasquatch in this uh, Trickster <laughs> trilogy. 
and as I was writing it, um, they prefer to be called the the wild people of the woods, not wild men of the woods, and they consider Sasquatch derogatory. And the Sasquatch in my novel is Hugin. He doesn't eat humans anymore. <laughs> Okay, it took me like probably two <laughs> seconds longer than it should have, but I got there. <laughs> so I understand, though, that you had trickster stories around the table growing up when you were a kid. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, it was um, that was a time when people still smoked inside their houses. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, my uh, my aunties and uncles after dinner, uh, everyone, you know, gathered around the kitchen table and told stories. And my favorite ones were the trickster ones, because they were always trying to one up each other. And they were always trying to make it like really fast and funny and crazy. And I just loved that. The stories that dad told me uh, it's far back because I could remember it. <laughs> it was sewage systems or tricksters <laughs> or Sasquatch. <laughs> he also had a lot of fishing stories. I don't like fishing. I do like, I do like like working on fish, but I don't like, um, like there was a documentary crew up here that really wanted scenes of me fishing. And I said, I'll do it, but I'll do it resentfully. <laughs> I said, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> So there are scenes of me fishing resentfully, <laughs> which, is how, which is how I've always fished. <laughs> me too. Due to my tradition. Yeah. Now, you say the trickster stories are your favorite, yeah. and they are also my favorite. But aren't they? Aren't they kind of everyone's favorite? Like, is that like? saying that Sweet Caroline is my favorite karaoke song? Or is you know, is there some other competing class of stories where people are like, oh, well, you might like a trickster story, but really this is, yeah, this is what you want instead. Oh, well, there's so many different kinds of tricksters and there's so many moods to them. I really like liked working with Weget. Um, I really, you know, uh, there's a bunch of other tricksters that appear in the third novel. So it was fun working with them, um, but I didn't go into them too deeply because I'm not as familiar with them as I am with Weekend. Uh Like there's like, I think the, the NAS trickster is a lot more benevolent than Weekend is. I, I can't pronounce his name or I could say it, but I would really mangle it. But you know, he's, he's, a, he's a lot more about like protecting his people, whereas ours was more about stealing food from them. <laughs> <laughs> Getting, and having children apparently <laughs> in great numbers yeah yeah they yeah he these he gets around so as a kid were you a story listener or a storyteller because some kids grab the steering wheel early like as soon as they learn that anyone can tell stories they say great wait till you hear this what kind of kid were you I was definitely not a storyteller. I was brutally shy. And I, I'm good at writing stories, but I'm not good at telling stories. Like uh, oral storytelling is a is a skill. And I know writers who can do both. Uh, and I find that amazing. But it's kind of like me and poetry. You know, I can write poetry, but it's never going to be great poetry. Uh, it's just not the way my brain works. So when I'm when I'm 
telling stories to people. Uh, I go on a side, you know, I get caught up in describing the basket that I saw that I really want. Um, you know, I'll suddenly remember like, you know, to tell somebody that, you know, oh, that person was really, really good at, you know, making creme brulee. Uh, and, you know, so I, I don't have the kind of storytelling ability that is uh, treasured in the Heisla Nation. <laughs> so when I came to writing, I loved it because I could finally tell a story because you can edit the, the written versions. Like any of the quippy comebacks, like, you know, you can spend a couple of days making them quippier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so it really sings, but when you're telling the story in the moment, you can't do that. It's, you know, whatever your head thinks up in that point. Uh, And we do have, like, different kinds of stories. Like, we have, like, the formal stories uh, that are tied to the potlatches and names and rights and responsibilities and proving that this person does own that name. And then you have the, the other level stories that I'm working with, which is oral stories that are in the public domain. Um, those stories were usually told to children to um, give them an idea of what our, our nuyum was like uh, and what happened if you broke it. So we get was wonderful for showing what happened when you didn't follow the Heisler protocols. He was a big rule breaker. And then, you know, the last level of storytelling is like the, like the family stories, like the time that uh, you know, Aunt So-and-So was driving home from a wedding in Rupert, and she got tired of her corset and threw it out the window, and it landed on the windshield of a cop car. <laughs> <laughs> so you're at the kitchen table. It's coffee and cigarettes all around. Mm-hmm. And, and pie. And trickster stories are being told. Are those <laughs> ones that people have told before? Or are they ones that they're making up for the first time? Uh, both. Okay. Uh, so some of them are variations on stories that have been told, like with more different details or different focus or a different set of characters coming in with we get. And some of them are just, you know, stories that uh, someone made up. And usually with we get stories, you know, there are, like, there are stories that you tell verbatim. And those are stories that have been passed down to you. And you have to have a big name for those stories. Uh, so you're told them, you're Nusa, they tell you again and again and again. And until you can repeat it back. Uh, and they'll pause, like, at a certain point, And you have to fill in the blank. I was horrible at that. Mm-hmm. That was never going to be a part of my future. <laughs> <laughs> you got no stories. <laughs> I don't have that kind of memory. <laughs> so by the Heisla measure of intelligence, I'm a little, you know, special. Because you have to know all your relatives. You have to know if someone tells you something once, you remember it. And if someone shows you how to do something once, you remember it. Those are the people we consider smart. So it's very different from like mainstream culture of mm-hmm. what people consider smart. So I really, I really liked uh, like books because that made sense to me. Like, and if you studied, it didn't matter if you didn't get it the first time. As long as you kept going, you could get a good mark. And so, what was the first book that grabbed you? What was the first one that really made an impression? 
the cat from outer space. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh my god, my poor parents. Yeah, I don't know how old I was, but I remember I picked that book up in the Sally Ann, and uh, I found it hilarious. So I read it so many times, like all the glue came apart, and I, you know, sort of stuck it back together with staples and electrical tape. And I would read the funny sections to anybody who would listen. So I'd follow my mom and my dad around. I followed the teachers around, random people at the bus stop. Uh, I, I think I read that book like a billion times. And then I finally saw the movie and was slightly disappointed because I liked the book better. Uh, it was still funny. But it wasn't, you know, uh, I had firmly bonded with the book. Um, and then when I entered my teenage years, the uh, I, I went through my, my first depression. And it was so strange because, like, I hadn't changed as a person. But, you know... But the mood that I was in, like the the headspace was completely different. So that was when I started gravitating towards horror. Uh, because when I was growing up, you didn't talk about depression. Like you, it was considered taboo. So there was, you know, there was no therapy. Uh, you know, they only had the older, like, tricyclic drugs. Uh, and my, you know, my parents and my doctor didn't really know what to do because it wasn't in anyone's vocabulary so i started reading like crazy because reading was the only way i could get out of my own head mm -hmm. and so you know I, I didn't bond with like a lot of the uh a lot of the YA novels at that point like they they weren't you know uh they weren't in me uh, but when I read my first Stephen King book, it was Carrie. And the mood of horror is so similar to the headspace of depression. Yes. <laughs> that I became instantly obsessed. So my family would get, would get me uh, for Christmas, they would get me like all the paperbacks of Stephen King. So I'd have usually have about three versions of each book, like one to read one on the shelf and one as a spare when I broke the first one. Well, and and, and Carrie has you know, really all of the things that you want in a teen novel mm -hmm. in terms mm -hmm. of that mix of depression and catastrophically bloody vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's exactly what you're looking for at that age. It really is. <laughs> Uh, uh, a thirteen-year-old me can uh, like really relate to Carrie, yep. uh, and then I, I think I think I was obsessed from him from Carrie to Kujo, and I had discovered uh, other horror writers like the Clive Clive's uh, Books of Blood mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stuck with me just for the incredible imagination. Like, oh, is that Clive Barker? Is that who? It was? Yeah, Clive yeah, Barker. yeah. Yeah. Uh, like in one of the books of blood when they were like making like the human giant and people were getting crushed like that that stuck with me and i thought about it for a while but uh back then i was also obsessed with uh, science fiction and fantasy i loved the hobbit i read the entire uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy in a long weekend. 
<laughs> uh, with breaks for, you know, microwaving pizza and going to the bathroom. If you do that twice, you come at the other end learning how to speak Elvish. It's a, uh, it's a, <laughs> it's a well-known fact. <laughs> but at the end of it, I wish I hadn't rushed through it so much. Like, I would have wanted my first time through to be uh, more attentive. So... You know, that was, that was the always a slight regret, but I just couldn't stop. I disagree, because if you read it more slowly, you go through all the songs. <laughs> <laughs> the, the songs take a long time. <laughs> there is a lot of singing. <laughs> I, have, I never thought trees could sing so much. Well, you know, I was, I was expecting the British people to sing more when I went to England. <laughs> Set me up for just because <laughs> it would be kind of like expecting New Yorkers to be very West Side Story, <laughs> right? Where there is so little choreographed dancing in this town. What is the matter with this place? So, at what point did you decide I have stories in me? I'm going to start writing them down and uh, and getting them out into the world because that. You know, that transition from reader to writer is a, you know, that's a very different way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, being surrounded by so many people who are reading, like the only person I knew who was a writer was my Uncle Gordon, who wrote a booklet called The Tales of the Kid and Matt. Uh, and he advised me not to go into writing. <laughs> I think he advised accounting. Thanks, Uncle Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> My mom and dad were very supportive. Uh, dad had always wanted to be an engineer uh, or an architect, and mom had always wanted to be an actress. So absolutely thrilled that I wanted to do something in the arts. You know, but all through my childhood, uh, because I had been such a fan of science fiction, I really wanted to be an astronaut. And it never dawned on me that I couldn't. Um, so I took sciences and math all up until I think grade 10 when I read that they had a, a height requirement, you had to be over 5'3", uh, and I wasn't. <laughs> and why should that matter? Are the spacesuits standardized? Do they not make short sizes? Because of the size of the capsules at that point. You had to be between 5'3 and 5'11". Oh, come on. <laughs> no, it's not that way now, but it was, you know. So I think I went through Greek ten like having my dreams just been completely crushed. Then I started watching a lot of Cronenberg. <laughs> uh, my favorite was The Scanners, closely followed by The Brood. So in grade uh, grade eleven, I took two English classes, one a regular English class, and one preparing you to write essays in university. Uh, and both my English teachers were amazing. And in one of the classes, uh, she read out a story I had written, ending Scanners the way I wanted it to end. And the class loved it. Uh, it was the very first time in my life I'd been considered cool. Uh, because, you know, I had been in the chess club, the astronomy club, the math club. <laughs> so uh, that kind of feedback was just addictive. So I, so I started my writing career writing fan fiction. Which is it, not an uncommon on-ramp these days either. So it's, uh, and I'm kind of glad for that, that it's it's become more 
legitimized as a way that people feel that they can get into writing. Oh, if I had had Wattpad back then, <laughs> I think my life would be completely different. <laughs> You'd have six million 11-year-old followers and no car. <laughs> <laughs> the exploding head Uber of Eden Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So as you were first then getting started with your own first books, were there any authors or books that you turned to or anyone that you found particularly inspiring as you were starting to find your own voice? That would be around the second year of university uh, in my bachelor's program. I took creative writing at the University of Victoria and I did really badly in my first year. I actually flunked fiction. <laughs> I was going into their poetry stream. I think I wrote a lot of erotic poems about trees. Mm -hmm. They weren't intentionally erotic, but the language was kind of lush. So that got me through first year. <laughs> that just sounds like someone writing from their lived British Columbia experience. That's... <laughs> <laughs> a red cedar and a yellow cedar. <laughs> yeah, but a year of that. But in the next, I think I snuck back into fiction by taking a summer course by uh, Bill Valgertson. Like, uh, there weren't enough people around that summer, so they, <laughs> they let me in. And that was the first time I had encountered uh, a mentor with a sensibility as grim as my own. I is an Icelandic writer of Icelandic descent, and he'd written a collection of short stories that I devoured. You know, and then my next one, my next mentor was like Mark Jarman. So at that point, I was worshipping at the altar of Raymond Carver. And then in one of my poetry classes, I was assigned the collected works of Billy the Kid. And that derailed like everything. I that kind of blew my mind open to the possibilities of writing, like what you could do with words. So I think I for the next three years I wrote like really bad copies. <laughs> uh, it did improve my use of language quite a bit, uh, trying to get to that point. But you know at that point like when i started to uh to read like uh, that was like my sort of entry into writers who were doing amazing things with language and you know time and perspective and uh so then i don't think i've ever not written anything that wasn't at least unsettling but the horror roots are still there like, I can't seem to to write a cheerful book. <laughs> uh, but I think that might be just, you know, the things that fascinate me, like the things that hook my attention and don't let go. So tell me a little bit about how this series got started. You've written Traplines, you've finished Monkey Beach, and it wasn't like you sat down with a piece of graph paper and decided, here's my plan for your for a three-book series. So like, what was the kernel at the start of this story? Uh, the kernel at the start was Dad trying to tell like my niece and nephew a trickster story, and they didn't find it funny. 
Like they didn't have, like they grew up in Ontario. They didn't have any context for we get stories. And I found that really sad. So I wanted to write a trickster story that was set in the current time. And then there was the whole process of, you know, the point of view. And uh, once I found Jared, the structure bent around him. Um, the story was driven by who he was and where he was. And I always knew that his mother was going to be a witch. And I knew that, but other than that, it was just um, trying to weave in the mythology. And at the same time, having like at, at 4 a.m., your imagination feels very free to just run amok. So there are these, these fireflies in the first novel. And what they were supposed to be was like a, a pretty little signal that, you know, Sarah had power. Uh, the, the girl that be eventually become Jared's girlfriend. Um, and then they started talking. <laughs> uh, so some of the, some of the creatures are, you know, they carry a lot of the elements, the traditional supernatural creatures that I grew up with. And some of them I completely made up, like the fireflies. Um, what else did I have in there? So having those characters interact with Jared shaped the way the novel was told. Like if I had chosen a different narrator, it would have been a very different story. And how was it to write your own trickster stories? Yeah, and so to decide I'm going to take on this traditional character, I'm going to weave a new story around them, and to, as you say, to write it rather than to tell it. Mm -hmm. Did that feel daunting, or did that feel like picking up something that you felt very comfortable with and very familiar with? I was very familiar with it, but I was very, very tentative and nervous about it at first. So I talked a lot about what I was trying to do with people. Uh, much the way I'm talking to people about my trashy band council romance, like, I don't want to do something that's considered lateral violence. I don't want to do something that's considered like, you know, as thoughtful as a novel as I can write and still have, you know, the, the crazy personal elements. So that was the process I went through with Son of a Trickster. And so these three books will have spanned how many years of your life? Like it's from kind of first one to now. Well, I first tackled this seriously in 2014. Okay. So so we're kind of, we're six years and change now. Yeah. And are you a different writer now than you were when you started? Oh, yes, much different. Well, what's like the, the big 10-year gap between Blood Sports and starting to write the Trickster series, a uh, lot of that was taken up with menopause. And, you know, a lot of the personal things that you go through when your family gets older. Uh, so I was very distracted. I had like a bunch of day jobs and it was really hard to squeeze in writing time. So I was waiting for the perfect writing time and it really never came. Was this before you found your, your 4 a.m. You know, writing window? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, but I missed writing. Like it's, it's a lot of fun. And if you are a daydreamer like me, it legitimizes daydreaming. <laughs> <laughs> You're working all the this time. This is a process. This is the art. <laughs> Not just me staring at the wall for three hours. <laughs> so between first book and third book, how do you feel like you've changed as a writer? The biggest change was being able to let go 
of having a perfect first draft. Um, I remember writing trap lines and every sentence just killed me. Like the editorial process for that book was <laughs> a lot of crying. <laughs> <laughs> and these long debates over semicolons and, you know, it was like, I was still fully in the thrall of, you know, the Carver-esque style of writing. And uh, <laughs> it just killed me that someone wanted to put in a semicolon here to make it clear. And it was just like, no, no semicolons, no adjectives, no adverbs. Uh, so now I understand house styles in publishing houses. Like every publishing house has a different style punctuation and grammar. Uh, so if you cling to like the APA and your publishing house does Oxford, you know, learn to let that go. You're just going to be angry all the time or. <laughs> <laughs> That's where cheesecake comes in. <laughs> okay. So, so far we've established that you've allowed semicolons into your writing. <laughs> this is the biggest difference between the first and the third. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot less, you know, self-flagellation and that's directly attributable to menopause. Like, well, that's excellent. Well done. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of the gifts. You, you just don't care as much about what other people think. So it's like, well, you know, I want to write and if it's goofy, it's goofy. Let's see where this goes. And I thought it was like the lightest book I've ever written. And other people were like, that was so traumatized. I was like, oh, okay. okay. I've still it's got still it. Dark. <laughs> Excellent. Thank okay. you, Stephen King. <laughs> well, you know, it is one of my lighter books. Like it's a, the trilogy is a lot lighter than like the, yeah. Well, the third book did take a dark turn. Uh, like the, in the first draft, everyone got a happy ending. Like everyone got their dream. Everyone was taken care of. Everyone dealt with their trauma. Uh, my editor was like, well, it's, it's very nice. It's quite lovely, but a little boring. So maybe not given. You were, you were coming off of your Game of Thrones experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saving everybody. <laughs> Every, everyone's coming out well, of this yeah, Well, that episode had like, had like the final you know, the season finale had just come and gone. I was like, oh, so I'm Game of thrones this. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sansa is Queen of the North. <laughs> I was like, okay, I get it now. Uh, and then the pandemic. Like, I was just starting the third, uh, the second draft of Return of the Trickster. Uh, and I had done a class visit. And one of the students in the class had gotten her teeth cleaned by one of the dentists that went to the conference. That, oh, my. Yeah. So we all had to go into self-isolation for two weeks. And at that point, they were still rationing the tests so that um, you couldn't get a test unless you were exhibiting symptoms. But we had to lock down for two weeks. And I have asthma and you know, a lot of immunity issues. So I was just freaked, like completely freaked. Uh, so that's the mood that I wrote the second draft in. <laughs> Everybody died. <laughs> <laughs> no one was left standing at the end of that draft. <laughs> My editor was like, well, can we have some of them live? <laughs> 
so the the final draft is a sort of balance between like the like you know once we came out once i moved back to get a map and realized that you know everyone was in the same sort of you know apocalyptic mood and it was much easier because I was only two blocks from my mother. You know, if something went wrong, I could be there. And I was in my own apartment. I wasn't like the Hague Brown house was lovely, but uh, during a pandemic, like that two acres of wood surrounding the house gets a, a little much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I could watch the river. Like I could, there's deer coming in from the park, the, you know, it was springs so while the flowers were coming out, but you know, Outside of that, it was all, uh, you know, pandemic-y. Uh, you know, I've been fascinated with coronaviruses for a long time. And, you know, a lot of the epidemiologists that I'd been reading had been warning that, you know, this is coming, this is coming, here it comes. And we just, you know, sort of blundered through it. So you, you can say that you were a fan, like, before it became big. Before it hit the big time. <laughs> <laughs> so... The TV series Trickster was shot in Kitimat. And what was that experience like? Because there's this this strange thing that happens when you, mm -hmm. you know, as a reader, when you hear an actor speak the words that you've only heard in your head. But I can't imagine what that's like when you're the person who wrote that character. So mm -hmm. do you still have your own Jared in your head alongside yeah. actor Jared? Uh, they've kind of melded at this point. Like the the first experience I had was when uh, the Monkey Beach crew came up. Uh, so they filmed in Kitimat Village for six weeks, and the first three weeks, like everyone in our community was so excited, like and and you know they were just thrilled, uh, especially when Adam Beach came up. But you know the last three weeks, like I was going back to school. You know, being an extra is is not as exciting as you think it's going to be. <laughs> so the experience of having a movie filmed in uh, my community was surreal. Uh, and I wasn't here a lot for it because I was on tour for Trickster Drift. So I could only pop in and out. And then, you know, almost a year later, uh, the, the TV crew for for trickster came up and you know again i was kind of stunned by how fast everything was happening because it, it you know monkey beach had been in pre-production hell for so long i just assumed the same thing would happen with trickster but uh you know here they were and they only filmed here for a week uh they filmed the other uh 39 weeks in north bay ontario and that was strictly because of like the tax credits. Uh, also, Kinemet was booming because of all the LNG activity happening. So it was hard to get like motel rooms. It was hard to get like anything booked. Um, so the first thing that surprised me was that uh, seeing Joel Ouellette. And because he was Jimmy in Monkey Beach and he plays Jared son of a trickster so that was hilarious because i knew him already uh and then i met like uh anna lamb and it was so weird it was like uh in my head i had pictured them very differently but when i the first scene that i saw was them in front of our post office uh and she's putting up a sign and he's on a like a, a medical scooter <laughs> And once they started interacting, it was like, oh my God, there they are. They're here. 
and for the week that they were in Kitimat filming exteriors, it was pretty intensive because they had to film like all the exteriors for the series in that week. Uh, so they were just doing like insane hours. Uh, and at that point, I think it was like the second day they were here, the documentary crew that was filming for like 15 different Canadian authors for the Frankfurt Book Fair. Mm -hmm. I uh, came up to Kitimat to interview me for my 15-minute biography. So at one point they were they were battling drones going up and down the Douglas Channel <laughs> as they were both trying to film like the same. <laughs> but I guess the film and TV world are pretty small because the the crews knew each other. Um, so they, they worked out a schedule for the drones. There can only be so many West Coast filming drone guys. Like, that's got to be... <laughs> that's got to be a small club. <laughs> so they, the documentary crew is here for three days, and then the TV series was only here for a week. So there were three days where I was, you know, on boats and... Um, yeah, there's this one scene. I'm curious if it makes it in, like, uh, my niece was here. Uh, and she's a like a, a cousin that she's best friends with and she was sleeping here and I was burning pancakes for them when the film crew came in. <laughs> like all good aunts do. <laughs> like they were blueberry too. So it was it was quite the smoke. But you get some extra smoke off of the blueberries. Yeah, That's, uh... I'm, I'm famous for, you know, my my really bad cooking. <laughs> So let's imagine for a minute, you can create a magic year of writing time. It isn't going to take you away from another project. Nothing's going to be late. It has no career implications. You just get this pocket of time to write a book you want. So right now, what would that book be? I have just, you know, I've always wanted to write like a fantasy book set in Northern BC, like a, like a, you know, Eden Robinson's Lord of the Rings, but with like a a young woman and the rings made out of spruce yeah yeah i've tackled it a couple of times but you know it, it's it hasn't worked and so are you are you thinking like you know massive multi-generational saga or uh is this a like a single perfectly rendered fantasy novel I think it would have to be massive. Oh, yeah. Thousands of pages. Yeah. Starting small and then branching and then, you know, becoming, you know, just just almost incomprehensible with it <laughs> so, detailing to who's because who's 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 that cousin. <laughs> so based on your current track record, if you started as a five page short story, <laughs> you... it'll be a five book series. Each of them 1000 pages long. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Perfect. With the charts at the beginning with all of the names, because that's yeah, that's very important. And a map. Has to be a map. Who has shagged who? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I have been speaking with Eden Robinson. Her latest book is Trickster Drift, the second book in her Trickster trilogy. And the TV series Trickster is streaming now. 
all of Eden's books and the other books we've mentioned here, well, most of them anyway, along with previous episodes of this show can be found at kobo.com slash conversation, which also has an archive, the repository of all of our previous conversations, many of which I have to say are really great. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review because it helps other readers find us. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamblin, usually recorded at our studios in Liberty Village, Toronto, Canada, but for now in my office slash storage room slash gym in beautiful Sandy Cove, Nova Scotia. Thanks for listening.